Let's pause to pray again. Lord God, thank you that um, you caused your word to be preached to the Ninevites, even when the preacher was weak, uh, when the preacher Jonah didn't feel like preaching to them, Lord, you still caused your word to be preached in that situation for your glory and for the good of the Ninevites. And Lord God, we thank you for the grace of preaching. We thank you that you have given this command in your word to preach the word, uh, that this isn't something we are to take lightly, because you have spoken in your word, and you are still speaking. And so, Lord, we know we need to open your revelation, your word, and hear from you. And so I'm praying this morning for your help in my weakness, in my frailty, that you would be the one uh, who would speak and take charge. Uh, because I know on my own, Lord, <laughs> with my own devices, it's an absolutely fruitless and useless exercise unless you show up. So we're praying your presence here, not only for me, but for each of us who are listening to your spoken revelation, to your word, that you would cause us to be good hearers, as Jesus says at the end of the parable of the soils, that we would be careful how we hear. So Lord, help us now, be with us, be rich and in presence with us, in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by publicly uh, saying thanks to Charles uh, for, um, I would say, scaling the mountain that is Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11 uh, last Sunday, um, for so ably uh, leading the congregation uh, last week through, through that magnificent passage uh, in my absence. So thank you, Charles. I had a, a chance to listen to the sermon um, this weekend, and it was a sweet uh, blessing and a, and a challenge to me personally in my own walk with God. So thank you, Charles. The passage that Charles preached is like a mountaintop in the letter of Philippians. Uh, most certainly, it is a high point in the letter. But now, there's a river that flows down from the mountaintop. The river is verses 12 through 18 of chapter 2. In this passage that we're looking at today, Paul urges some things on the church. He exhorts us on several matters. And these matters flow directly from the mountaintop. They flow out of the Christ hymn that you studied together last week. So here we go, as verse 12 starts, and I, ha I hope you have your Bible open, as verse 12 starts, Paul immediately, notice, he immediately connects what he is about to say with the Christ hymn that he has just given. And he does that by using the word, therefore. Again, when we see that word in scripture, we always have to ask the question, you probably know it already, what's the therefore, therefore, right? So notice the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12. The idea here is since Christ humbly descended from his eternal place in heaven to his death on the cross, since 
Christ was subsequently vindicated by the Father and exalted to an unparalleled place of supremacy. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, friends, we are going to camp on these verses for a little while this morning because there is just so much rich food for us here that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Notice first that near the beginning of verse 12, Paul mentions the obedience of the believers. He says, as you have always obeyed. Now, who was it that the Philippians had been obeying? The one they'd been obeying was God. The Philippian believers had demonstrated a track record of living in obedience to God and in obedience to the commands of God. And here's something that's very, very important, I think. Their obedience to God had originated in and had been empowered by their faith in Jesus Christ. And the same is exactly true for each and every one of us in the church. Our obedience to God, if that obedience is to please God, must originate in, must flow out of our faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1 verse 5, Paul uses a very interesting phrase there. He says, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Matthew Harmon is a commentator on Philippians. He notes the crucial connection between obedience that pleases God and an active faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. He says this, quote, Biblical faith produces obedience over the long term in the life of the Christian, just as the light of the sun produces obedience heat. One more time. Biblical faith produces obedience over the long term in the life of the Christian, just as the light of the sun produces heat. The Philippians, whose faith was in Jesus Christ, had proved, because of of their faith in Jesus Christ, they had proved to be obedient to God, in a way that was pleasing and honoring and glorifying to God. That was their past track record. But now, says Paul, now in the present, not only in my presence, he says, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, friends, I have a confession to make, and I'm going to make it right here. There have been occasions in my life, occasions in my life, when I've been behind the wheel of a car driving, and I come to realize suddenly, whoa, I'm heading in the wrong direction. And I make a U-turn. And the U-turn may not be, let's just say, it may not be altogether legal. 
<laughs> okay, to perform that maneuver in that spot. But I need to make a U-turn because I'm heading in the wrong direction. So what do I do at that point? Well, I look around and I carefully check to see if there are any police cars around. Uh, it's confession time, right? And then on these rare occasions, seeing no police officers, I admit to you today that I have, on occasion, performed illegal U-turns. It's very therapeutic to be up here this morning. But what's my point? My point is simply that as human beings, there is a tendency for us to play by the rules when the authorities are around. There's a tendency in us to work, out, uh, to work at our driving, to be all proper in our driving, obeying every rule and statute uh, when the police are present right? There's a tendency for the eight-year-old to be punching her brother, but then to stop that behavior immediately when mom and dad walk into the room. Paul is aware of this all-too-human tendency, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, when this father in the faith named Paul was around, when he was with the Philippians, when he was present there with them in person, they would have a tendency to be perhaps a little more fired up in their faith, a little more zealous than when he was not with them. As Paul wrote this letter to them, he was not with them, right? He was in a Roman prison. And his concern here is that in his absence, the Philippians would not flag in their zeal and in their energy and in their passion for well-doing. Notice he says, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. He wants an increase in their commitment and in their zeal while he is absent from them, in fact. Much more in my absence. But now, what does it mean, as we look at this text, what does it mean to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, I think there are several things for us to really chew on here. First of all, we need to understand that here Paul, in the text, he is expertly, we need to see this, he's expertly combining the plural and the singular. It's very important for our, our uh, interpretation of the text. So in other words, when we look at the original Greek of this phrase, the word your is in the plural, meaning you all. Work out your salvation. You all, Philippian church, corporately, together with one another, work out your salvation. So it's quite clear that the apostle here is addressing the corporate body of believers with this command, and yet he also puts that word own in here, doesn't he? So if something is my own, it belongs to me as an individual, it's my personal belonging. It is your own salvation that must be 
worked out. So notice then that there is also this singular individual aspect that is at play here along with the corporate plural aspect. So the idea seems to be this, that corporately, as the body of Jesus Christ at Snowden, we must together work out the salvation that each of us has received as individuals. I'll say that one more time. Corporately, as the body of Jesus Christ, we must together work out the salvation that each of us has received as individuals. But what exactly does work out mean here? Well, the Greek verb that the ESV has translated here as work out is a verb that describes bringing something about or producing something, working something to a result. Matthew Harmon notes that in ancient Greek literature, this verb was often used to describe the farmer who cultivated his, his land so that the work of cultivation resulted in something. So Tom Schreiner rather, I think, provocatively suggests the translation, and I think it's a good translation. He suggests, accomplish your salvation. Accomplish your salvation. And here in our text, the verb is in the present tense in Greek, meaning that it is an ongoing action. It is an action this working out that is to continue. Work out and continue to work out your salvation in an ongoing way. Cultivate the salvation that you have been given by God. Work that salvation toward a result. Work it out toward a finish. What does Paul mean here? He means that as believers, we are to nurture and we are to cultivate the inward reality of salvation that God has brought into being in us. We are to work that God-given salvation toward a result. And how do we do that? We do it by, for example, tangibly acting out the salvation that God has given us in terms of exercising grace and mercy to others, including our enemies. We work out our salvation also by doing the spade work of conforming our thoughts and our attitudes and our words and our actions to the gospel reality that God has caused in us. Okay, and again, Paul here is talking to born-again believers people who have been regenerated by the Spirit, they will understand what Paul is talking about in this text. Another way to work out our salvation is by making real efforts every single day to mortify, to use the old term, to mortify our flesh, to put our flesh to death. Uh, constantly renewing our minds in Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt here, friends, there's no doubt that Paul is calling us in this text to go to work. Are you with me this morning? To go to work as believers, to not be passive in our faith, but to make real efforts to obey God, to pursue holiness, to strive after 
holiness. And this work is to be done, says Paul. Notice this. This work is to be done in a certain posture. What's the posture? In fear and trembling. Now, we should recognize that in the same neighborhood as verse 12, we have also verses 17 and 18, where Paul will sound the note there of joy and rejoicing, right? So with all of these verses being in the same neighborhood, I really don't think that we should read the the fear and trembling in verse 12 as a sort of abject terror. I think that would be a misreading of the text. Rather, in the words of Dennis Johnson, I like this, he says, the fear and trembling that Paul mentions here, he says, refers to a sober attitude, a sober attitude spiritually, that results from recognizing both our own inadequacy. Have you recognized your own inadequacy? our own inadequacy, and the life and death significance of the situation in which we find ourselves. Or if you prefer, Matthew Harmon says it in this way. He says, quote, Such fear and trembling recognizes the reality of who God is, the eternal nature of the stakes involved, and the seriousness with which one must pursue Christ-likeness. He says, the fear and trembling grows out of a recognition of weakness and out of the power of temptation and out of a filial dread of offending God. Do you have a dread, a healthy dread of offending Almighty God in your day-to-day life? Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, as we transition to verse 13, here I borrow a little bit from Greg Beale. Okay, so just follow me here for a minute. So say I'm a travel agent, and you come to me saying, I need to get to Los Angeles. And I reply to you, well, great, that's excellent. L.A. is a sunny destination. But the problem is, you're going to have to walk the 4,500 plus kilometers from Montreal to L.A. because there are no planes, trains, cars, motorcycles, or bicycles that are currently available. Now, probably in that situation, right then and there, you're going to cancel Uh, your travel plans. Am I right? Um, I think it'd be hard to find anybody willing to walk 4,500 kilometers clear across the continent in the dead of winter to get to Los Angeles. However, if on the other hand, I say to you, fine, you want to get to LA, LA is a great place to go. Let's get you there in six hours on an airplane. Of course, now you're going to go Because flying in the airplane changes everything, doesn't it? Now you have power, the power that you need to get to Los Angeles within the day. Why am I telling this? Why am I creating this situation? Well, here's the point. In our passage, I want you to listen carefully. In our passage, verse 12 cannot be read 
without verse 13. If verse 13, or sorry, if verse 12, if verse 12 is like the need to get to L.A., but with no power to do it, verse 13 is like the availability of the airplane. If we read verse 12 and stop there without verse 13, it is frankly terrifying. How are we supposed to legitimately accomplish our salvation in our own power? It would be like walking 4,500 kilometers in the dead of winter. Not going to happen. Impossible. We need the power. We need the airplane if we would accomplish the desired result. And verse 13, friends, is like the airplane. For it is God who, what? Works where? In you, notice. Take this personally. It is God. God. The one with all power. Who works in you, both to what? To will and to work for His good pleasure. Please see this in God's Word. See that the imperative or the command in verse 12 is rooted firmly in the indicative of verse 13. In other words, verse 13 describes the enablement that God gives the believer, the grace with which God undergirds the believer, so that the believer may accomplish the command of verse 12. How will we accomplish or how will we work out our salvation? We will do that, friends, only by the power of God at work within us. Are you with, with me this morning? It's true that God calls us to do the work of working out our salvation in verse 12. But he does not leave us to our own resources to accomplish it. God works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, who is it who radically transforms us by his spirit? Who is it? I can't hear you. Who is it? It is God. Does anyone else do that? No. It's God who radically transforms us by His Spirit. It's God who invades us, commandeers us with His Spirit and changes our desires and gives us the power we need to work out our salvation with fear. And trembling. I really appreciate how John Kitchen summarizes verses 12 and 13. He says this. I want you to encourage, encourage you to listen very closely here. Kitchen says, the responsibility is ours, verse 12. The ability, God's alone, verse 13. The responsibility was laid upon us by God. And he also provides the ability to meet the responsibility. He says, He who lays down the responsibility unfailingly makes available the ability to fulfill it. Amen? 
Isn't God good? And I love what Paul says at the tail end of verse 13. Notice he says that God wills and works in us for what? For his good pleasure. Notice, for his good pleasure. God's own good pleasure is the motivation in his willing and working in us. It's not anything he sees in us, good or ill. It's not anything that he sees in us that moves him to will and work in us. It's his own good pleasure that moves him. And we know, don't we, we know that when God acts out of his own good pleasure, we are the happy recipients of the spillover of the delight and the satisfaction that he takes in himself. Do you know that God takes delight and satisfaction in himself? Because God is alone the perfect being in the universe. Well, there's much more that could be said about verses 12 and 13, but for the sake of time, we've got to move forward now to the rest of the passage. Question. What's a tangible, practical step forward in working out one's salvation in the power that God supplies? I want the church to listen and listen very carefully to what God is saying here. Verse 14. Do all things without what? Grumbling or disputing. Now, we need to point out that in verses 14 through 17, first of all, we need to point this out, there's a whole cluster now of sudden allusions to Old Testament texts. So Paul is doing something here by quoting all this Old Testament material, and we're going to try to make some sense out of all of it. When he uses this word grumbling, In verse 14, he wants us to call to mind the Old Testament pattern of Israel grumbling against God and against God's chosen leader, Moses. Israel had grumbled, hadn't they, about their lack of food and their lack of water on the wilderness journey. Israel had grumbled later in the story concerning the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Grumbling also had featured in the story of Korah's rebellion. Israel had displayed a pattern of grumbling. God's people had displayed a pattern of grumbling. Now, very sadly, friends, grumbling comes so much easier to us than expressing gratitude does. Yes? What is it to grumble against God? Well, let's think about this. To grumble against God, to grumble against the ways of God, to grumble against the providences of God, to grumble against what God allows in your life, is to say to him, I would do a better job of being sovereign over my life than you are doing, God. I have more wisdom than you do, God. To grumble against God is to be murmuring in your heart about the will of God, about the ways of God. Or as John Piper has put it very strongly, he says this, grumbling is evidence of little faith 
in the gracious providence of God in all the affairs of our lives. It is a kind of unbelief in the spectacular promises of God. And unbelief, he says, is a dishonor to God. It belittles his sovereignty and wisdom and goodness. Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that grumbling is a serious spiritual problem. It's a serious problem. Paul goes from work out your salvation in the power of God in verses 12 and 13, now to this very practical step, this very practical step in doing so, which is to do how many things without grumbling? All things, notice. All things. So so you aren't permitted to grumble about certain things. You aren't permitted to keep one or two things to grumble about. Well, I don't grumble about 90% of stuff, but I'm grumbling about this. This text doesn't allow you to do that. All things are to be done without grumbling. As John Kitchen puts it, this phrase, all things, is all-encompassing, and it includes every thought, feeling, choice, relationship, word, task, duty, obligation, necessity, pleasure, decision. Everything and all things are in view. Church, we are commanded here in God's Word, whether we like it or not, to do all things without grumbling. And also notice, to do all things without disputing. Now you know that there are certain personalities who seem to thrive on being resistant to things. Who seem to get their very identity from always challenging things and arguing against things. Disputing. Such people are constantly dissatisfied, mark it, constantly dissatisfied with the state of the things in the church. And they demand that things go the way that they think is best. Their vision for the church and for Christians is really all that matters. Such people, you'll notice, will never settle down peaceably and winsomely into the actual right now of the church, the broken state and the broken condition of the church, they never rest long enough to listen to what God is up to right now, right here in all the mess. They dispute and they demand and they are restless and they often lack empathy and they won't back down until their dream and their vision is implemented. Disputers. Well, that sort of thing is a corrosive, destructive acid in the body of Christ, says God. And he leaves absolutely zero wiggle room here. Notice that. No one in Christ's church is to grumble about anything or to act as a disputer because God knows very well that these things are destructive in his church and he has his church for a mission. Don't do any grumbling or disputing, he says. And then verse 15, 
Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, where? Notice the missional aspect here. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you, church, shine as lights in the world. Now, in this verse, we have what we might call the goal that we work toward in accomplishing our salvation or in working out our salvation. The goal is to appear in the world as blameless, innocent children of God without blemish. Paul piles up the terms here to describe people who have a godly reputation inside the body of Christ and a godly reputation also outside the body of Christ. These are people against whom there are no grounds to charge them with any wrongdoing. Now I wonder, are you a person like that? Am I a person like that? Paul is not describing sinless people here. Don't get him wrong. Because there are no sinless people except for Jesus Christ, the God-man. But rather, he's describing people who have a reputation of being blameless. You can't find grounds to charge them with any wrongdoing. Every person in the church of Jesus Christ is to be this way. But again, such blamelessness is not simply an end unto itself. There is this important missional reason for us as the church to have a blameless and innocent reputation. What's the reason? The reason is that the church finds itself, found itself in Paul's day and finds itself now embedded in what Paul names a crooked and twisted generation. And being blameless and innocent and without moral blemish in such a situation means that the church is going to shine as lights in the world. Now again, we need to see that there are a couple of major Old Testament allusions happening here in this verse. And I think if we try to unpack them just a little bit, it's going to help us get more impact here. So the first of two major Old Testament allusions here in in Philippians 2.15 is an allusion to Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. Paul is picking up the language of Deuteronomy 32.5 in this verse. The Deuteronomy verse reads like this. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Now that verse is located in a larger passage in Deuteronomy where what's happening is this. God's faithfulness is being contrasted to Israel's unfaithfulness. God had dealt justly, Israel had dealt corruptly. God had been pure, Israel proved to be blemished, etc. In Philippians 2.15, Paul brings in the language of that verse in order to say to the church, in effect, church, steer clear of Israel's poor example. With your relationship with the risen Jesus Christ working as the power in your lives, 
Be what Israel failed to be. Be unblemished children of God who don't grumble and who don't dispute. And then let's focus our attention on the latter part of the verse. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, first of all, follow me here. Track with me. First of all, I want to argue that there's a parallel at play in this phrase. Okay, a parallel. Namely, the words crooked and twisted generation are in parallel with the word world at the tail end of the phrase. So, crooked and twisted generation and world are describing the same thing, which is, in the words of Matthew Harmon, the created order in rebellion against its creator. The created order in rebellion against its creator. So let's get the flow here, okay? Paul says here that the church... Believers who make up the church, we are to avoid being like blemished, corrupted Israel was in the days of the Exodus. We are not to grumble. We are not to to, uh, dispute. We are to remain blameless and unblemished in the power that God provides by the risen Jesus Christ. And we are to be that way so that we would thereby shine as lights in the midst of a created order that is in rebellion against its creator. You know, I miss the opportunities we had while we were in Alberta to visit what is probably my favorite place in all the world, Calling Lake, Alberta, where my extended family has had a property since about 1977. I have uh, many fond memories of sitting out by the campfire on a clear night, gazing up into the sky, uh, which was just simply awash with stars. Now, living in the city, we don't get to have that experience very often, but if you can get away from the city lights, uh, Majid, I know I'm talking your language here. If you can get away from the city lights to a place in the country where you can look up into the sky, on a clear night, it is a breathtaking thing, right? All those stars and satellites too, you can see going slowly across the sky. Well, that's not a bad picture to have in your mind as you read Philippians 2.15. The stars stand out against their black, dark background, right? Obedient believers whether we know it or not, stand out in a dark world that is in rebellion against its creator. Lives transformed by the Spirit of God stand out against a darkened, sin-sick world that is in bondage to the flesh and the devil. And Paul here is borrowing the language of yet another Old Testament text Daniel 12, verse 3. In the Daniel passage, which was penned way before the incarnation of Jesus, resurrection was prophesied there in that passage in a very clear and in a very powerful way. So Daniel 12, 2 is a great prophecy of resurrection. 
And the righteous who would be resurrected, said Daniel in Daniel 12.3, the righteous who would be resurrected would shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars. When Paul writes Philippians 2.15, and when he alludes back to Daniel 12.3, he's saying something pretty stunning. He's saying that we who believe in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, we already experience in the present the resurrected life that was prophesied in Daniel 12.3. Obedient believers already shine like stars in the world because those believers are people who have been raised already spiritually, raised to newness of life in the risen Jesus Christ. As as believers in Jesus, we have already begun to experience the resurrection life that Daniel prophesied in Daniel 12, 3. Well, Paul keeps going in verse 16 with a new exhortation to the church to do what? To hold fast the word of life. To hold fast, to hold forth the message of the gospel as that message is found in the 66 books that make up the one book that we call the Bible. Hold fast and hold forth the word of life. Even through adversity, do that. Even through persecution, do that. And he says, do all these things that I have detailed for you here, church, in these verses. Do all these things, notice, so that in the day of Christ, that great day that's still coming, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Pastor Paul wants his sweat over the Philippians his tears over the Philippians, his work on behalf of the Philippians, his hours spent ministering to the Philippians. He wants it all to end up giving praise and glory to God as he stands there before God on the last day. And then finally, verses 17 and 18, where we have our last Old Testament references. Again, just chock full here. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Those words even if, at the beginning of verse 17, even if, those words indicate a hypothetical situation. Even if. Paul is saying, you know, at this stage, as I write from this Roman prison, I'm not entirely sure how this imprisonment is going to turn out. But hypothetically speaking, even if it eventuates in my being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, even if my imprisonment eventuates in my death, then I still rejoice. (laughs) Wow. I still rejoice, and so should you, church. The image of being poured out as a drink offering comes straight from the Old Testament yet again. When the priest administered the morning and evening burnt offerings 
in the ancient sanctuary, those offerings were accompanied by drink offerings. The priest would pour wine over the sacrificial victim before that victim was set on fire. The wine would enhance the pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the thing about pouring drink out on a lamb was that once the liquid was poured, you couldn't reclaim it. The poured out drink was utterly dedicated then to the Lord, never to be reclaimed again. Paul compares his life and his possible death to a drink offering, something poured out, never to be reclaimed for himself again, poured out, dedicated to the Lord, committed utterly to the Lord his God. But notice very very carefully here that he essentially says to the Philippians, notice this, it's very interesting. He says, my life and my potential death for the gospel as your pastor, this drink offering, well, this is just the icing on the cake. The actual cake is the sacrificial offering of your faith. My drink offering is only poured onto the sacrificial offering of your faith, which is the main event. I love that. And of course, the idea here, folks, is that the lives of the Philippians were like a sacrificial offering. And this is very much in keeping with Romans 12.1, where our bodies are to be presented to God as what? Living sacrifices. Well, I want to read uh, uh, Matthew Harmon's little summary of Philippians 2.17. I think it's a good summary. It's very helpful to us. He ties this verse to the wider passage that we've been studying. So listen to what he says. He says, in summary, Paul pictures the lives of the Philippians as a sacrificial offering laid upon the altar before God. The act of presenting themselves as living sacrifices comes from their continually deepening faith in Jesus Christ as they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Should Paul be called to give his life in the advancement of the gospel, he would be a drink offering poured out by God himself as the culmination of the sacrificial act, producing a pleasing aroma that ascends into heaven beautiful. Finally, we note that in both verse 17 and 18, Paul emphasizes joy, doesn't he? He he emphasizes rejoicing. Because you see, even if his fidelity to Jesus Christ, his pouring himself out in ministry on behalf of Jesus Christ and behalf of the church, even if that fidelity is going to cost him his life, Paul will rejoice because he knows that his death will not be in vain. And the Philippians are encouraged to rejoice with him. Well, friends, what a dense passage of Scripture this is. I think you would agree. But, but, but let's not lose track of the big picture here. Okay, and then we're done. Again, back at 127, chapter 1, verse 27, we noted there that Paul issued a major imperative, right? The main imperative to the church, which was this, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we said, when we preached that text, we said that 
everything that then proceeds from that main imperative right through the Christ hymn that Charles preached last week, all the way up to 2.18 that we ended with today, all of that is an extended unpacking of what it looks like and what it means to live lives worthy of the gospel. So, to live a life worthy of the, gos- of the gospel is to work hard to maintain unity in the church. To live a life worthy of the gospel is to have the mindset among ourselves of the humble servant, the crucified and exalted Jesus Christ, who suspended privilege in order to serve. To live lives worthy of the gospel is to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, which means practical things like abolishing grumbling and killing the tendency to dispute. And all of this, friends, has a missional focus. The goal is, once again, that we as the church would shine forth like stars on the backdrop of a dark sky, that we would be a bright and shining contrast to the world that is in rebellion against its creator, that the risen Jesus Christ who lives in us as believers would shine out and would attract people in this world who right now remain enslaved to sin, death, and the devil. What a high calling for the church. What a breathtaking vision for us as believers. Let's take time now in silent prayer and let's ask God for his help to make us the people that he envisions in this passage. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for us to drift from the perspective of your word so that now it's all about us. It's about our agendas. It's about our wants. It's about our needs. Lord God, I pray for us here at Snowden that your vision for the church as it is given to us in Philippians, as you've been speaking it to us through Philippians, that it would take root and take hold and grow and flourish and blossom increasingly in this place. Lord, there's so much about our church that is already glorifying to you and such a blessing to you. But I pray, Lord, that you would take us from A to B to C along the path of righteousness for your sake, that you would grow in us a desire to please our King in everything that we do and say and ask. I pray these things for your sake. Lord, and now, shortly as we go uh, to eat together, uh, we thank you for the food we are about to receive together as your church. We pray that our fellowship would be sweet in your spirit. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for the hands that have prepared the food for us so that we can have that opportunity. We pray your blessing over it all. In the name of Jesus, amen.